0: Welcome to TV. I'm Harry Binswanger, the HB in HBTV. I'm a philosopher who advocates Ayn Rand's philosophy. And today I have another adherent of Ayn Rand's philosophy who will be joining me for the second part of the show, uh, Professor Adam Mossoff, who is uh, a law professor at the Antonin Scalia School of Law at George Mason University, which is a great position to have, and he has a very successful career. Before he embarked upon that success or when it was just starting, he developed something called the Mossoff Method, which we will get to for navigating, negotiating the difficulties of being a philosophy student in a college. But first, I want to directly uh, answer the question that was submitted last time in the super chat by someone going by the handle equal to reality. Which is pretty high self-praise. What is the best method of learning Kant and what he actually says? And is he even worth learning for somebody who is not a professional philosopher? I'm going to broaden it up to what is the best method of learning philosophy? Now, there are two issues here when we talk about learning philosophy. Do you mean learning truth? Or do you mean, or do I mean, because I'm the one who put it this way, or do I mean learning the history of philosophy, learning the various ideas that have been put forward? If you're learning the truth, you won't find it many other places than in Ayn Rand. You will find it in her students, of course, and and you'll find some in Aristotle, some in John Locke, even some in Thomas Aquinas. But 99% of the philosophers throughout history will tell you they don't have the truth, and certainly don't. So uh, the first thing is, if you're trying to learn the nature of existence and of your relationship to existence and the proper standard moral value and what is the right government, read Ayn Rand, and I recommend reading her in historical order. If you're new to her nonfiction, first read the the novels, all of them, therefore, Atlas Shrugged, of course, The Fountainhead, We the Living, and Anthem. I recommend reading those and rereading them. But for the philosophy explicitly, although some is explicit in uh, Atlas Shrugged, but for the nonfiction works, read them in the order they were published, because they were published in an order that more or less corresponds to the way that you would take them in and best understand them. So that means starting with For the New Intellectual. And if you've read the novels, you don't have to reread the half of the book, which is segments, selections from her novels. But read the title I'd essay of that, then read her book, The Virtue of Selfishness, which is a collection of essays. Then read Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, which is on politics specifically. Then read, uh, I would actually go out of order here to read Philosophy, Who Needs It? And the answer is you need it, her answer. And then read Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology, her most technical work by far, but even her most technical writing is very accessible. There are then other things by her that she can read, but you will have uh, the Romantic Manifesto, particularly for her views on art. But you'll have everything in a logical sequence. But I suspect that the question I had in mind, what, who? Since I made the question, I know the question I had in mind was aside from Ayn Rand, how do you study the history of philosophy? The specific question was about one historical philosopher, Immanuel Kant. And I have a very different view about how you should study the history of philosophy. My view is start with baby secondary sources. Look up old style encyclopedias. Look up for the simplest, most elementary, shortest presentation you can find on the web if you don't have access to the World Book Encyclopedia or one of these uh, You know, I'm not talking about the Britannica, but I would start with the simplest overview. And actually, for the new intellectual, the title essay gives you the simplest overview. So you should start with that. But that's that coverage of the whole history of philosophy is done in about six pages, ten pages. But that will give you a map. Then read good, once you've kind of gotten the picture from that in a very simplified way, read a good secondary source on the philosopher. Then if it's an accessible source, uh, sorry, an accessible philosopher, of whom there are about three or four, then take up the original work. Do not attempt to dive in and read, say, Aristotle. I mean, you won't damage your brain, but it's going to be hard. I'm going to illustrate this from the history of philosophy. Aristotle's the best philosopher in history by far. And here's how his works we don't have his actual lectures or his actual works. We have Maybe his lecture notes and maybe students' lecture notes, and they're put in an order by Andronicus of Rhodes around the first or second century AD, hundreds of years after Aristotle died. And his rationale was for the order he gave them was not tops, but that's the way they're given. So let me read you. I'm going to skip the first book of the first work of Aristotle that's in the standard basic works of Aristotle by Richard McKeon. And is regarded as the first, the first work is supposedly, I mean the, the first one in the collection is the categories. The first section is preparatory. So let's start in with the second section. Because you won't know what the first section is doing there. Here's the second section. So it's effectively the beginning of the beginning of Aristotle, as, we, as you would find it in a book. Forms of speech are either simple or composite. Huh? Examples of the latter, that would be composite are such expressions as the man runs, the man wins. Of the former, that is of simple, man, ox, runs, wins, dot, dot, dot. Okay, you can sort of get that there are single terms, single words, single concepts, we would call them in objectivism, and then there are statements using them. So you could kind of get that. Well, he's talking about their concepts and then there are sentences or propositions as the technical term. Now let's get into something substantive. Of things themselves, some are predicable of a subject and are never present in a subject. Thus, man is predicable of the individual man is never present in a subject. By being present in a subject, I do not mean present as parts are present in a whole, but being incapable of existence apart from the said subject. Some things, again, are present in a subject, but are never predicable of a subject. For instance, a certain point of grammatical knowledge is present in the mind, but is not predicable of any subject. Or again, a certain whiteness may be present. So you get the idea? You don't want to dive into that. Now, this happens to be of immeasurable importance. He is here talking about the difference between entities and attributes. But you would have to have a lot of preparation before you could understand that that's what it's about and what why that's an issue and what is meant by entity. So do not dive in to Aristotle. There are sections of Aristotle, particularly in his ethics, which you can dive in uh, at the beginning and, and you make some sense of it. Let me do that to do justice to Aristotle. But this is one twentieth of his work. Okay, every art and every inquiry And similarly, every action and pursuit is thought to aim at some good. And for this reason, the good has rightly been declared to be that at which all things aim. But as certain differences found among ends, some are activities, others are products apart from the activities that produce them. And it go on, uh, goes on, and then you get in the second section. If then there is some end of the things we do, which we desire for its own sake, everything else being desired for the sake of this, and if we do not choose everything for the sake of something else, for at that rate, the process would go on to infinity so that our desire would be empty and vain. Clearly this, the thing at which everything is done for, the, for its own sake clearly this must be the good and the chief good will not the knowledge of it then have a great influence on life and he goes on so that there are readable things in Aristotle but he's not a philosopher you can just pick up oh I hear Aristotle's good let me let me pick up it with the beginning and reach the end Now, there is a philosopher that you could do that, but I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, There are a few philosophers. You can just pick up Plato's one. This is Plato's famous republic. Um, And I wanted to read you several quotes, but I've talked too long. So let me just read you the money quote. Then you will establish in your state and it is ideal society. Physicians and judges, such as we have described, they will look after those citizens. The physicians and judges will look after those citizens whose bodies and souls are constitutionally sound. The physically unsound, the physically unsound. You got COVID. You got a limp, you got your crippled, you're blind. They will leave to die. And they will actually put to death those who are incurably corrupt in mind. So people who disagreed with Plato would be killed. This is the founder of Western philosophy speaking. And you can read that, they skirt around that when you read Plato's Republic. I have the Cornford translation here. But most philosophers are not readable like Plato is. And even Plato, you're a lot better off to read the short two-page summary somewhere before you pick it up. Most philosophers are like Spinoza, who's one of the good philosophers. But he begins his... Uh, ethics with some axioms oh that sounds good like the axioms of objectivism are existence exists consciousness is conscious a is a okay that sounds good here's the axioms of spinoza everything which is is either in itself or in another Huh? Two, that which cannot be conceived through another must be conceived through itself. Three, from a given determinant cause, an effect necessarily follows. And on the other hand, if no determinant cause can be given, it is impossible that an effect can follow. Really? I mean, I understand what he's saying there, but Why? And the last one I want to read. The essence of that thing which can be conceived as not existing does not involve existence. The essence of that thing which can be conceived as not existing does not involve existence. I'm lost. I assume you are too. Now, the worst of them all is Kant that the question was about. Uh, let's let's pick a page at random. Here's from the Critique of Pure Reason. I opened it at random. I really did. I probably never read this before. Page 232 in the uh, abridged edition I have. Finally, as regards the third factor, which has to be considered in a preliminary choice between the two conflicting parties, it is extremely surprising that empiricism should be so universally unpopular. The common understanding, it might be supposed, would eagerly adopt a program which promises to satisfy it through exclusively empirical knowledge and the rational connections there revealed in preference to the transcendental dogmatism, which compels it to write, Are you asleep yet? So most philosophers are really hard to read. The readable ones are Plato, Descartes and William James, and David Hume, I would really say, for a bad philosopher. James is a bad philosopher, too. Uh, So the the method is to do it in layers, get the overview, and most people give you a correct overview. People who do babyfied, simplified overviews generally get it approximately correct. Then something a little bit more serious, but without reading the philosopher himself, like W.T. Jones, A History of Western Philosophy is a really good history of philosophy. W.T. Jones, A History of Western Philosophy. Then look at the sections Jones quotes from and read in there more, okay? Now, the question that I find fascinating is how do you navigate school, learning philosophy in school? How do you take philosophy classes? And specifically, how do you get a good grade in a philosophy class? Because chances are you're not going to learn very much. So if you're there, the one thing you can control and get out of it is a good grade. So how do you do that? My guest today, Adam Mossoff, who is, as I said, a professor of law at the Antonin Scalia School of Law of George Mason University and a former student of mine. And you also have an M. Phil, which is almost a Ph.D. from Columbia in philosophy. And he developed something he calls semi facetiously the Mossoff <laughs> method, <laughs> So, tell us what the Mossoff method is for writing papers in school philosophy courses.
1: Oh, thanks, Harry. It's a real pleasure to be here.
0: I'm uh, glad to um, have you too. I should have said that.
1: (laughs) Well, and and um, and I was your student, and it was uh, fantastic and awesome, and I learned so much, um, and continue to apply the you know the the methods and and. Principles that you taught me uh, uh, many years ago. So,
0: well, it was great to have you as a student. You're one of my most successful uh, progeny here. If you're that,
1: <laughs> thank you. Um, so, I, that, so uh, what, what, uh, what Harry's referring to is the uh, is the is uh, this method uh, that I uh, came up with uh, when I when I was in graduate school when I, when, in philosophy um, and trying to think about. How I can write my papers in ways that would be less destructive to the uh, to my thinking methodologies, because I, the, I think as Harry I think really exemplified very uh, uh, nicely um, in the first portion of this uh, video cast is um, that the destructive effects of of kind of contemporary philosophy or, or even of, of, of bad philosophy more broadly is, you know, is in the methodology. It's not, you know, it's in, it's not in the substance per se. It's, um, especially in contemporary analytical philosophy where they, you know, they require you to, you know, really focus in on particular words out of context and, and engage in this type of kind of, and, and, of, uh, analysis, this, that just breaks things down and, 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 and prevents kind of integrated objective thinking about the real world. And, um, and so um, I conceived of this method and, and I, as Harry's right, I said, I call it facetiously fascist, uh, the Mossop method um, in the sense is it, the point is to, is to write a paper um, addressing kind of the difficult kind of philosophers that you're, that, that Harry was just describing, um, and while insulating yourselves from kind of the analytical method a little bit. Um, it's not a cure-all, but it helps a little bit. And, and, and the way you do this is by not having to come up with arguments yourself. You let other philosophers make uh, the arguments for you, um, and you use other philosophers' arguments as a way to express these points in your paper. So, for instance, if you're taking a a, a course on um, on on Leibniz, and your professor wants you to do a paper on the, uh, you know, a term paper on the mon- on the monadology and his, mon- his, his theory of the monads, um, and so um, instead of you kind of sitting down and reading Leibniz and, and reading W. T. Jones or something and kind of thinking up some criticisms of it here or there, and then putting them all together into a term paper. Um, you, uh, you, you, you go online or you go to the library and, and, you, you, uh, and you get some books on Leibniz, hopefully by some kind of well-known contemporary philosophers. Um, you also get some, you go online and you get some uh, journal articles, some philosophy journal articles on Leibniz, hopefully by some well-known contemporary philosophers. Um, and then you just kind of you, know, you use the index in the books and you kind of scan through them and find points that they make that critique Leibniz in various ways. And you put those together into arguments and you present those in your paper. And your contribution is kind of this collection, this unique collection, original collection of these various criticisms of Leibniz's view. Um, And in this way, you're not having to kind of analytically kind of come up with your own kind of criticisms, um, but that you're letting other people do this for you. uh, And then you're presenting that. And and so the first benefit is, as I said, is that it insulates you a little bit from the bad epistemological effects of having to kind of think in an analytical linguistic method that kind of dominates contemporary philosophy. Um, another, but the, but it also has some other benefits. Um, your is one is that you know it. To your professors, it shows that you are engaging with the literature, as we say in academy. You're engaging with other scholars and thinkers about these subjects, and not just that. Maybe you're engaging with some really prominent pl- philosophers, people that, that your professor admires, respects, reads, and and he or she then becomes really kind of uh, uh, you know impressed with you. What the, you know, oh, you're really serious about this. You're actually you know showing some interest in this. Um, it it also um, it also show, it starts to train you a little bit um, in some of the, if you are of interest in going into academia, kind of how to engage in the literature, because that is actually a legitimate um, um, aspect of writing um, in scholarship in academia, is you have to show you're aware of what other people have been saying. And, and, and very oftentimes you're responding to and are critiquing what other people have said. And so it kind of starts helping you develop this kind of um, uh, for lack of a better term, an academic style of writing um, that is that is kind of the norm in academia. It's true in in, in, in legal writing just as much as it is in, in in humanities. You know, you you start off by saying, "Well, so and so said X, and so and so said Y," and I'm now saying Z because I think Y and X are wrong, and he, and Z is explain, and Z explains this, um, and um, and then uh, and then. Uh, uh last but not least, right, it, um, you know, one of the, uh, another kind of um, uh, additional benefit is you acquire good research skills, you know, research is a practical skill set, it's not something that you can just kind of deduce from on high like oh I know how to do research, it really is something you just have to do in order to get good at it. And, um, and so learning how to find good articles and books, or at least good as defined by the, whatever con- uh, context in which you're searching, you know, is, is an important skill, skill to acquire. Um, it's one that you'll, you'll use in your life, for, regardless of whether you go in academia or, or some other profession. Um, and, um, you know, and it's something that, you know, this, that this up method kind of reinforces for you, you know, how to do, you know go through the the various databases of articles, how to go to the library and find the books, how to identify which books are of value. And by the way, when you check out the books, you don't have to read the 200 page book on slide bits. Uh, You you don't have to read the 150 page book, use indexes, right? Use, you know, that's why indexes actually were invented is to make it more efficient and easy to find the actual relevant material. So you look up the index and you know, theory of monads or the monadology, and you go and just read those particular pages. And by the way, this is also becomes another good way um, to uh, uh, to actually make it a valid argument, because sometimes you'll find a contemporary philosopher might make out of context um, a valid point. So we'll say, for instance, like, oh, well, you know, Leibniz and his theory of monads might be, you know, seems to be saying that consciousness can, can exist without existence or something. He might say something like that. Now, of course, the the contemporary philosopher might wouldn't mean what we mean by that when we say that as objectivist, But then you can actually turn that into an objectivist argument. And then you can even cite Ayn Rand. Um, and in fact, this is what I did when I was at Columbia in graduate school in the 1990s. And so I would find philosophers who would say things that were like somewhat close to or sounded similar to objectivist points. And then I would then turn that into, oh, and you know, one could go a step further or, you know, or, or, or one could interpret this statement in a slightly different way and you know, and as Ayn Rand said, and then make her point and cite her point. And now you're just identifying Ayn Rand as as another philosopher in your writing. And in fact, that's a really great way to get her kind of uh, accepted, and or or I should say in, the, in those terms, to make people less uh, feel less defensive when they see her uh, views, when they see her views as being just stated neutrally and objectively and factually as just part of. A, a group of intellectuals who are writing about or thinking about philosophical ideas. Um, and I did very well in Columbia, uh, uh, you know, in doing this. And um, and I think that it can be helpful and successful for other objectivists.
0: As I recall, you've got nothing but A's on these papers.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got that A's did on by this
0: one. Now, and I, uh, I want to add uh, to that, as, as one who was taught philosophy, If you look at it from the standpoint of what the professor wants, Mm -hmm. he wants to know that you know something and that you can tell a logical argument from an illogical argument. They will often give papers, I gave them, and most of them give papers. uh, Assess the validity of Leibniz's monodology. Uh, Give your own opinion of Augustine's theory of time, whatever it is to motivate you, they ask for your judgment. They don't want your judgment, nor should they. Right. What, what, what sane 50-year-old philosopher, let's say, wants to know what freshmen or <laughs> sophomores who are 19 maybe think yeah. about some topic that they're confronting for the first time. Uh, so it's it's they they want to know. And he did grapple with the material. He did you know kind of sort up from down, and he knows some of the uh, people. He, he cited Spifkin, and Spifkin is my hero. You know, I loved what Spifkin wrote. And you don't have to. Cre- uh, that's the other thing. Don't come to a conclusion. Don't right. say. Uh, well, A argues this and B argues that, and A's right. You can say things like A impresses me as the more in touch with the real world answer, but it's not complete. Yeah. You know, so you can give a tentative endorsement. This is the way I'm leaning. Yeah. It sounds better to me, but I know I'm just a beginner. Now, Part of that is rational. Part of it is you're knowing that you're, if you are, that you're just beginning and you're not really qualified to make a final judgment on professionals in the field. In a way you are, in a way you're not, but from their standpoint, you're not. So if they see, you you know, saying, okay, it sounds good to me. I know I'm just starting. I might change my mind later if I see a response on the other. Then that's good. Then they say, oh, he's got a good sense of where he is intellectually. So it's presented as a kind of game of ping pong. Spivkin says, A, about the monadology, and it sounds good. But Blosky says that Spivkin is wrong. He, He doesn't take him into account so and so and so and so. And that sounds a little fair, but I wonder if there isn't an answer to that. And lo and behold, I found that Armstrong says blah, 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 which sounds like defending Spivkin against Bach. And it sounds to me more grounded than than what Blas. That's they love that. That is is the, the A paper right there. Uh, and you got to remember, you don't have any competitors in doing that. The, uh, almost no one knows to do that, so they don't really want your opinion. They shouldn't really want your opinion, but they do want to know you can think and you can find sources and you engage with them, as as Adam put it. So the Masov method is uh, self protection against absorbing this um, way of thinking. And it's a way to get a good grade. And it makes sense. It's not, you know, uh, appeasing them. There's maybe a little of that. But you're you're there to show them that you can do stuff by their standards, right? They're the professor. You want to show the professor, I can do what you think is right for philosophy. You don't have to believe it in your soul. Me, Maybe you do, but he's not interested in your soul. He wants to see that you can do what he's grading you on doing. Yeah. So always look at it from the professor's standpoint and it neither be cynical nor naive about it. Uh, so we're... Uh, A little bit over, but maybe you can stay and we'll take some questions in the chat if there are any. Uh, Good. Daniel, is there uh,
1: no questions on topic?
0: No questions on topic. Well, that's not surprising because the number of people who really are taking philosophy courses now and, and are listening to this podcast is zero. And the number of people who want to study philosophy and want to know if worth learning is about three. So, um, I mean, we have an audience of at least a 1,000, but uh, <laughs> it's, it is a rarefied thing. I wanted to do it because I care a lot about this subject. And Adam has really... But, but what I said is important and what Adam said is is really smart and important. And I didn't figure that out myself as a student, but I could see it was right after I became a professor and understood why I was assigning the papers I was assigning and how I was grading them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, thank you, Adam, for explaining the masov method he doesn't get royalties anymore <laughs> he's an intellectual patent uh expert that's his field intellectual property not should they've patent. had patents and copyrights and intellectual property and he doesn't get royalties they would have expired right Since you came up with this
1: um no well uh if I got a pat if I got a patent on it, the patent would have expired by now. Yes. Yeah. If I got it as a method. But if I got a co- if I got it
0: copyrighted,
1: <laughs> that goes on a lot I don't longer.
0: think you, you couldn't you couldn't copyright. It could but, be a uh, trade secret. It could be a yeah. trade secret, No, but it then could then be we... a trade secret because
1: I disclose it. So Yeah,
0: that's the yeah, problem. So, so yeah. but
1: well, I could I could claim a I guess a trademark in it, you know, uh, you know, the in the in, in the the Massoff Massoff
0: method. method. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I look forward to seeing the logo you developed for that.
1: But, you know, Harry, your point was really well made about how like students get thrown off when professors give them assignments to say, tell me what you think about yeah, this aspect of this philosopher, um, because they really think the pro- oh the professor wants me to really come up with these arguments, that explain to the professor what I think about this, and that's exactly not, not the case for all the reasons you rightly identify, which are objectively valid reasons. You know, an eighteen-year-old or nineteen-year-old just can't, you know, can't is not going to come up with you know, kind of an earth-shattering philosophical insight. And your job as a student is not to teach the professor either. So your job really is just to convey yeah. back to the professor, I learned the material and I engaged with the material. And and, and the Mossoff method is kind of a, a way to show that I and mean, a way to demonstrate that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you're you're engaged in a trade. You want his recommendation in effect, his, his positive evaluation. Mm-hmm. And these are the standards that he's using. And it, it, you, you don't know that he is until you, you know, s- think about it or see the other side. But boy, I, I asked on every test and every paper, give me your view of X. And I didn't care what their view of X was. I just wanted them, them to care and yeah. to, to give the state of the argument as they saw it uh so um thank you very much we're we're we have a little a last bit minute over question. Time. Oh, awesome. there is now a question is Great. there
1: any organized presentation of the Mossov method published anywhere online an article or blog post or something yeah uh, um i don't think so unfortunately yeah i i used to do it in the early objectivist conferences back in the 90s or, i mean not early for me <laughs> i would uh, mm-hmm. uh, i would uh um I would do present little informal presentations on it, but I, I, haven't, I had never done a video presentation or written it up, unfortunately, sorry.
0: But you can replay the recording of this. Now and you have this. Yeah, everything is explained. It would be great if it could be concretized more. Um, actually, we should bring you on with one of your papers. And, oh, yeah. and you show them what you did.
1: <laughs> well, that might be painful for me to read. <laughs> you know, yeah,
0: it like, might look, be. 20 be. 30 years
1: ago, I'd be like, oh, my God. This is like, I've got my right?
0: papers but... from 60 <laughs> years ago. Yeah. I've got my papers from 60 years ago. And one of them was, since we're just schmoozing, one of them was for a class by Hillary Putnam, who was... One of the top, top philosophers of the 20th century. He was head of the American Philosophical Association for one uh, year, which for whatever that's, but he's universally recognized as a really top leading philosopher. And he gave me a C minus, and his comments were real bad. And I was angry, and I knew. I just knew he was discriminating against me because I put forward objectivism by name there. But I read the paper again years later, and it was horrible. It was a parody of what a bad, ignorant, objectivist philosopher, uh, philosophy student wouldn't write. It's it just I had no clue. Mm-hmm. So, yes, the early papers can be embarrassing. I was, of course, 18 at the time, so I I claim that as my excuse.
1: That's 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 more than a justifiable excuse.
0: (laughs) I hope so. I hope so. Guilty (laughs) with explanation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's great having you on, uh, Adam. We'll have to do this again. I'm sorry so short, but let me say to all those who are here listening, thank you for coming, and I hope to see you next week on HBTV.
1: It's good to see you. Thank you for having me and and I look forward to watching HBL